0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today I'm very pleased to have as my guest Michael Gora, who will be speaking about his book, The Bells in Their Silence Travels Through Germany. This was published by Princeton University Press. Mr. Gora, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I would like to tell our listeners a little about you. You are the Mary Augusta Jordan Professor of English at Smith College, where you have been on the faculty since 1985. Your books include the Pulitzer Prize-nominated Portrait of a Novel, Henry James and the Making of an American Masterpiece. Other titles are After Empire, Scott, Naipaul, Rusty, and the English novel at Mid-Century. You have also been the editor of editions of Faulkner, Henry James, as well as the editor of The Portable Conrad. And you are a distinguished book reviewer, recognized by the National Book Critics Circle for this work. Your reviews have appeared on both sides of The Atlantic, in many newspapers, and in magazines, Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Book Review, Boston Globe, LA Times, Times Literary Supplement, Wall Street Journal, Slate, The Daily Beast, and even the uh, long lamented Washington Post book world. I want to thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book now. I'm going to ask you to take us to Germany. Uh, The Bells in Their Silence is remarkable to me because it's an apolitical book about a country that it is very difficult to view in an apolitical way. And yet, this book, you could say, has its eyes wide open. Could you please tell us how you came to write about Germany?
1: Um, in some ways, it was a great surprise to me. Um, and I, I suppose that, that uh, to, to define that, I have to go back to where exactly in my own life the, bo- the book came. Um, I had written two books about novels. And at that point, I decided that I wasn't going to learn anything more by simply at that point in my career, getting to be 40, say, um, I wasn't going to learn anything more by simply writing another book about fiction. And so I decided to look around for something else to write about. Uh, I wanted to see whether I was even capable of writing about things other than novels. I'd been interested in travel writing for a long time. I had started teaching a course on travel writing and decided, why not why not try it myself? Um that the, the decision to do that dovetailed with a couple of other things. Um, my college has a faculty exchange with the University of Hamburg, and uh, I managed to talk them into letting me go, even though I spoke no German at the time. Uh, so I talked about postcolonial colonial literature uh, in Hamburg about Rushdie and Naipaul. And then my wife, who does speak German, uh, was asked to direct this year-long study abroad program we had there. And that came about right at the moment that I was thinking I needed to find something else to write about, so i I sort of piggybacked on her on on the professional opportunity she had, and started reading madly i read um I read a lot of travel books, I read a lot of German history, I started to read as much German literature as I could, and then that became the bulk of my reading during the year we were in hamburg and as i as I was in doing this reading, um, I kept on being startled by one thing, which is that I wasn't able to find travel books about Germany. There were god books, there were serious journalistic accounts of the country, but travel books, um, books that were at once, uh, well, as Bill Bryson says, neither here nor there, that were about being in a particular place and yet had the air of inconsequentiality, that, Travel books often have that we find, say, in reading in reading Paul Theroux, in reading sometimes Bruce Chatwin. There weren't books like that about Germany. And I kept on asking myself why. And uh, clearly, I thought it because in the 19th century, there were Anglo-American travel books about the country. Clearly, it had something to do with the course of Germany's um, history since since the 30s, uh, that Germany seemed to be a place. Well, if travel books are and genre for amateurs, for people who are enthusiastic about a place but are subjecting themselves often to a new place. Germany was a place for professionals. It was a place for historians. It was a place for journalists. Uh, It wasn't a place for somebody like me who just wanted to walk down a street and see what he was thinking as he did it. And yet that made it an interesting problem. Uh, It made uh, writing about Germany... um, not just an exercise in writing about Germany, but it made it uh, It meant that I had to think hard about genre, about what what about Germany meant that it didn't fit in with the genre of the travel book, which is, is, after all, the capacious genre. It's one that Goethe has worked in and Henry James and Flaubert, Rebecca West, Sybil Bedford. What was it about Germany that meant that it didn't fit, that it was left to To reporters, so I asked myself that question, and the book I produced uh, was is a a kind of it's it's an odd book. Um, I uh, I know that's not what I should say in talking for a podcast about my own work, but but it it is it is a little odd in that it's a fusion of genres. Um, It has as its epigraph uh, a line from the 19th century German geographer Wilhelm Heinrich Riehl. They go something like this. We wander about in open country so as to learn how to wander about in the dusty world of books. And that's what I tried to do, to, to visit this city, that city, this bit of the countryside, these mountains, to live in the place in order to learn how to orient myself uh, in the world of books, in terms of German literature, German history, and so on.
0: I don't think it's a bad thing to describe a book as odd because it catches a person's curiosity. We could say that Alice in Wonderland is an odd book too, and yet it lives forever. As a matter of fact, um, I was wondering whether when you started to take on this project, did it feel a little like... Uh, immersing yourself in Lewis Carroll's caucus race, because did you know where the beginning or the end or the top or the bottom was going to be?
1: No, I I, I had no idea. And and in in that way, you know, some travel books, some travel books are about a journey that starts at point A and goes to point B. It it chronicles an actual trip. I was living in Hamburg for a year. Um, I didn't know where the beginning was. I didn't know wh- what the end was. Uh, the book is not at all linear in any in any any straightforward sense. Um, but uh, no, I, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know for a long time whether there was going to be a book or just a collection of of observations. Um, I struggled for a long time uh, with the form and finally found that that it it worked best. When, I, when each of my chapters managed to put uh, that sense of experience on the ground up against a set of textual experiences, uh, up against novels, essays, uh, poems. Um, that's, where, that's where the book seemed to come alive.
0: I'm curious to know, when you actually began working on it full-time, or as much full-time as one can, how long did it take you? to write
1: it? Uh, that's a hard question to, to answer because um, I began by writing a series of what I thought were going to be short chapters. Um, um, ch- chapters ranging anywhere from 5 to 15 pages in, in manuscript. And I got, a, I got a bunch of those up up and running, maybe 100 pages worth, and sent them to an editor I worked with before, and uh, he sent them back and said, you know, not Quite, Not quite. So I, I then spent a summer or more uh, rejigging them in the ways he suggested, putting putting the textual encounters up against the, the, the account of life on the ground, and then found I needed a number of more chapters to do that. Um, uh, the year we were in Germany was in 1997-98. I went back there for... Um, Extended visits in the summers of 2000 and 2001, and again in 2002. Uh, and by the end of 2002, certainly I had I had found uh, found the form. Um, and then it took about another year to finish putting it together. But I, I think the the process of actual writing was it, it was a protracted one.
0: Tom. I. I'm thinking about uh, George Eliot as you're speaking because her visit to Weimar, to uh, visit Goethe, um, was a very 19th century experience. It unfolded over time, just the way you're describing your own um, uh, process through finding what your book would be and i think there's really um i would like to commend you for not being in a hurry <laughs> because we can we can miss what the point of a place is uh when it gets put down too fast and and because there are so many travel articles now and travel writing mm. and essays uh that tell us not enough.
1: Well, I think I think that you know, the, the danger of travel writing is is superficiality. Yes. Yeah, you know, I was uh, this weekend I was reading the Times travel section. And um you know, and, and frankly there was there's was an article on the, the joys of left bank Paris that was presenting itself as saying something new and I thought yep done that 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 it was all the most it was all the most familiar uh things um and that's that's frustrating that 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 travel writing tends to revisit the same places over and over again and to say the same things over and over again um i had a certain amount of luxury which is that i i have a day job uh i i uh, i teach for for my for my income for my living um i was not under any pressure to produce had any um, given rate except a kind of self directed pressure um, and uh, so I had the the luxury of allowing allowing what I was finding and thinking and reading about to take the time it needed to find its own shape uh, and that that's a great luxury and i I, I know that not many people have that um, I also thought though that that it would be about Germany very easy to write, um, to write something superficial, um, to write something, uh, uh, touristic on the one hand and talk about the beauties of the Rhine and so on, uh, or to write some, something about, you know, how much the history depresses you. Uh, and I, di- I didn't want to do that. I wanted to find some, some, uh, Way of registering the complexity. Uh, uh, I guess I well say the complexity of my own response It sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but 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 I don't mean to do that. But but that one responses to a place are variegated. You you are appalled at one moment and fascinated at another, and then a lot of it is just when when you're living in a place, a lot of it is just ordinary life where you. You you go to the grocery store and out with friends and I wanted to get that part in too as well as the the meditation on, on history that is, is is a large part of, of of what the book offers.
0: Well, I can certainly say that as a person who lives in New York, I range between being uh, fascinated and appalled numerous times every day, and I I think that everyone who lives somewhere finds that absolutely normal life. Uh, there, There is something that I'd like to mention that connects with the history of America and um, our German background, which has, um, because of two world wars, fought with Germany, become so buried and covered, and yet even New York was an intensely German town in the most fascinating way, in the 19th century, uh, I have spoken to uh, people over the years who told me that, either in the 20s or in the 30s, their family changed their last names so they wouldn't sound German.
1: I've, I've, I've heard that often. Uh.
0: And and we um, we ourselves have not been able to let what is German about America uh, be as apparent as it could be?
1: Right. No, I've I've heard that often about people changing their names. Um, uh, in fact, one of my colleagues here, a colleague a man in the German department, and Joseph McVeigh teaches a course on uh, German America and the the, the the ways in which in which um, basically a, a German ancestry uh, and cultural identity went underground. Um, uh, starting in the teens, um, mm-hmm. the teens with the response to World War I, and it reasserted itself to some degree in the 30s uh, with Lindbergh, say, um, and, and the German-American Bund, um, and then went underground again. Uh, but a couple of times, I've for some reason been in, in Manhattan. Um, I think in early October, there's always a weekend when there's a German parade. Uh, Steuben day uh, right. celebrating the the um, the Prussian I think he's a Prussian who was one of washington's uh one of washington's officers and and uh, uh there societies uh, they they all seem to come from Pennsylvania actually but they were up in up in new york for for um for for a a parade um, I think that this is a place where well, even, even uh, German literature is not as translated, not as well known in this country as it might be, as it could be. Uh, if you go to I remember going, uh, before, around the time I started this project um, I went to a, a large borders um, in suburban Hartford and walked through, one with, with a big history section, and walked through the shelves of German history, and there was there was a bookcase full, uh, but almost all of it was twentieth century history, uh, and almost all of it dealt with either World War II or the Holocaust. Uh, you're hard put to find anything on nineteenth on century Germany. Um, hard put to find um, uh, anything on the Holy Roman Empire, um, or on aspects of, of German culture that were not were not basically pointing towards. Um, 20th century disasters.
0: One of the interesting things that I found in the book was the description of how um, regional the territories that are now that now uh, are <coughs> make up Germany were, and it made me think of Italy, which has always been a country that does not consider itself a country, but a group of regions, if you talk to anyone who is Italian, they say, I'm Tuscan, I'm Sicilian, I'm, uh, I'm from Puglia. People don't uh, really identify nationally unless they go outside of the country and then they're carrying their passport, which says they are from Italy. I think that's and to Germany as
1: well, in many ways. Yeah. So go 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 ahead, and then, and then I'll answer.
0: You described it that that um, the riverine middle was Prussian, Baden. Um, the, I'm forgetting what the third region was, and that's what people considered themselves well, throughout throughout the 19th century well, because uh, Bismarck didn't pull. Germany together as a political entity until it was in 1871.
1: Uh, yeah, um, I think in fact that that or a sense of regional identity is still very strong. Um, now there 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 are a couple there are a couple of wrinkles to it. Um, part of it is a survival from from the 19th century. The Ger- Germany, like Italy, is um, in many ways a, a decentered uh, polity. Um a lot of Italians don't like Rome. They don't like the pull of Rome, the centralization of Rome. Well there are there are a lot of Germans who feel that way about Berlin have always felt that way about Berlin. Um the uh Bonn Republic, what we call West Germany, uh decentered its own institutions. The legislature was in Bonn, I think the courts were in um the money was in Frankfurt, the courts were in in in, 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 in another city. Um that that the Government functions were spread quite widely throughout the country. That, in a way, reflects the the idea that going back to the 19th century and earlier, that that Germany was more a culture and a language than it was a than it was a state. It wasn't a state; it was many states. In the 20th century, or rather, post World War II, um, I think a lot of uh, Germans felt more comfortable. Uh, asserting uh, or talking or speaking of themselves in terms of a regional identity rather than a national identity, in part because um because nationalism, uh the nation was a tainted category after after the Third Reich. And then also of course there were there were two nations. There was East and West. Uh which Germany are you speaking of? So people spoke of themselves as Bavarians uh, or as people in, in the east from Thuringia or Saxon. Um people in the north of Germany were from Schleswig-Holstein. Um uh there there was a re- a real sense of, of regional difference in Hamburg I noticed and, and I found this oddly enough uh in real estate ads. Uh they talked about uh you know the the style of architecture as being hanseatic
0: hanseatic yeah i i, I was very tickled by that description and and i please. It,
1: it's, it's an assertion of of an older pre national identity uh an identity that goes back really to the middle ages, but the sense of of the north German mercantile cities as having. A culture of their own that was not the same as the culture of the rest of what we call Germany. Um, that was oriented outwards. Um, that was proper uh, in uh, in uh, Budenbruchs, which is the the codification of of, of uh, the Hanseatic ideal. They speak of Bavarians as people who hardly speak German at all. Um,
0: it made me think of uh, the New Englanders, the clipper ship empire yes. that really is separate from the. Uh, it had it that society had its own identity, just the same way the Hanseatic uh, Northern Germans.
1: Right, and if, if you uh, if you go to Salem, Massachusetts, and go to the Peabody Essex Museum, uh, you feel that because you 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 have a sense of. We think of Salem mostly as the witch trials, perhaps, but, but if you actually study the history of that region, what you think, what you really think of it, of is in terms of the China trade, of this very um, proud uh, mercantile tradition.
0: Lucrative and uh, global before America was global. Yes. Yes. And damn proud of it, too. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that northern parts of countries um, sometimes have these um, similarities, and also they look down on southerners as not speaking English or not speaking German. Right,
1: right, and 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 God knows that's uh, the north-south divides in Italy are. Uh,
0: oh my God. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're utterly crucial, uh, utterly, and 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 that otherwise. Um, Impeccably, uh, people whose politics are otherwise impeccable will speak of the North-South divide as as ineradicable and natural. Um, the, the the exception to this it's that North-South divide holds in France too. The exception, oddly, I think, is in England, where where in effect the south of the country functions as the north.
0: It's probably one of the few examples in the world where the south is on top. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, in Italy. The guest arbiters are are Italians from the south. Yes, but they're treated just as um, casually as Turkish guest arbiters have been in Germany, yeah, exactly as a social group. Exactly. Yeah, not quite. Ish. Right. Right. Now, I, I, it's a question in my mind whether what you have written is a travel book. Mm -hmm. I found, and in our conversation it's been coming out as well, that I have learned so much about European uh, historical interactions in Western Europe from reading your book. I learned a lot about the Hanseatic League. I became familiar with... um, Many things that um, go beyond. I'm just reading about Germany, right. and I am so grateful to have um, to have the means to do that. We we find us ourselves now um, uh, redefining the uh, stature of the countries of Western Europe. And um, when you were talking about um, looking back on earlier German history to the Hanseatic League, I was reminded of something that a Greek friend has told me, uh, which was that why do people look back to ancient Greece when so much of Greece history is really based on Byzantium and Byzantine culture, philosophy, history. But we, um, our, our education has fast-tracked us straight back to the ancient, Mm -hmm. skipping over important parts of the closer, uh, closer historical times. And, uh, the same way, I felt that there were so many things uh, in uh, our, our American university education that um, do not provide us with that kind of cultural uh, currency that would help us form opinions that are based on more than the past 50 years. I do want to say that you have glossed over nothing in German history of the 20th century and you have made it clear that there are things that remain uncomfortable for people in downtown Hamburg Um, uh, in terms of passing landmarks that are there to remind citizens of uh remind citizens not to forget i wonder if you could say a little about that and how you found found a way to speak about Weimar and Puchenwald in the same chapter well it's
1: this is the the german conundrum the complexity the the problem for us um uh you know i i think uh i'm okay the, i i think essentially i'm i'm an american i'm a fairly provincial american i didn't grow up traveling very much um, i grew up in new england and didn't didn't go anywhere read only English history and a bit of American. So discovering, um, in effect, I discovered all of Germany at the same time. Um, uh, I mean, I had a working knowledge of World War II, but that was about it. But I got a more detailed knowledge of of that war and of the Holocaust at the same time that I was also learning about the Holy Roman Empire. And at the same time that I was learning about, about um Rococo architecture and Episcopal states and nineteenth-century um, mercantilism. It all came. It all came at once, and and so, and a, a lot of that has to do with with um, with the fact of marrying in my mid-thirties, uh, a European. Uh, my wife is Swiss. Uh, her father was actually born in Hamburg, um, and so. That, that that the marriage meant there was a, a discovery of a world that i had had, that had almost no contact with and very little knowledge of um and uh, it helps in this way that also that that she's a medievalist that her own understanding of of uh, of europe uh, runs back so that we're always as as we travel always seeing places as as a kind of palimpsest of uh of um, or of, of sort of sedimentary core with one layer and another layer and another layer um, never just a single moment uh, or a single era the the further back you go the more you know that you cannot that that, that, that you can't uh, define a place a country a history in terms of a. Uh, Well, in terms of a single snapshot, uh, even if that snapshot is is 12 years long and and, uh, cost us all that it has. Um, So. So. It's 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 a complicated thing, though, to to try to hold many moments in your mind at once. And sometimes sometimes you sometimes you can't. uh, you ask about Buchenwald and Weimar, and and actually that was a relatively easy thing. Um, it's relatively easy because the the paradox of of um, Weimar uh, and the adjacent Buchenwald has been written about before. Um, Timothy Garton Ash has written uh, quite beautifully about it. Um, it's one of the one of the one of the stock uh, comparisons uh, or tensions that. People who think about Germany explore. I guess what I did that was a little different was was to do it not just as a paradox, but in terms of, of walking around from one place to another. And and uh, uh, I remember describing in the book um, getting into a cab and asking the cab to take me to Buchenwald, which felt sort of obscene to me. And, <laughs> it, I, it does sound obscene. And yet I didn't I didn't have any other way to get there. I think there was there was. My time was short and there was one bus up from the city center every few hours. And I, I, I wanted to get there that morning. Um, so in a way, if, if you if you just if you note those kinds of um, incongruities, uh, the incongruities that come as you simply go about Um you do find that you you can hold quite disparate things uh, together in your mind, um, uh, but it's 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 not an easy thing, but uh, but it's but it's possible.
0: Well, the um, somewhat equivalent of that in New York is getting into a cab and asking someone uh, an out of towner, out of towner, asking uh, the cabbie de- to to take them to a ground zero exactly, and then we'll go for dinner. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing
1: is um, you do that and then you do go to dinner. Uh, yes. Because, because um, there's a part of you that thinks that daily life ought to stop. And another part that knows that it doesn't, even if you want it to. Um, so you go to Buchenwald or you go to ground zero and maybe you do take a cab, and you go to dinner, but you're not quite the same person when you get to dinner as you were at breakfast.
0: And, and you also did say that the cabbie took that completely sang-froid. Uh, he, he takes everybody.
1: you had done it before.
0: Yeah, of course. That's his livelihood, to take people to the places that they come to visit. Right. I think what's difficult for Americans, first of all, is we have a big ocean between us and European history. And that really uh, slows our learning down somewhat because we're not up against it. And the other thing is that we do not have to confront uh, the remnants of destruction now the South is more in a position to do that right. than other parts of the country. Uh, but as an as a nation, we have had the luxury of being able to maintain almost a superiority that is not based um not based on having been through the crucible. So it is um, perhaps uh, why the Europeans consider Americans naive. What do you think about that?
1: Well, the, the, what you said about the South, there's, there's a famous argument about that by, by that C. Van Woodward, um, the historian from Yale, uh, put, he says it said, and this is an argument he made first made in the 1960s that the South was the one part of the country that had known military defeat uh, and had seen military defeat on its own soil in the way that, that really every place in Europe has had. Um, and then I think he said Vietnam changes that a little bit. Uh, Vietnam changes that although um, I think there's the revision revisionist accounts of Vietnam that Holds that, quote, we were not allowed to win there; that our army was not allowed to win, which I, I think is is a deeply mistaken way of understanding that war. Um, uh, if what you've pointed to is one of the things that I find I find most frustrating about um, about America, uh, the sense that uh, we are. You say above it all, um the sense that we are somehow exceptional um, and by that I you know I, I don't mean that the country doesn't provide certain um, exceptional opportunities but but to think of American exceptionalism as suggesting that we are somehow immune to or innocent of um the catastrophes of history that every other country is, is subject to um, is, is is one of the most pernicious and damaging myths that um, I think really quite I think deforms our our politics our sense of ourselves and our sense of our place in the world. Um, we we are not immune from history, and yet. Every time something bad happens here, you you read that well. America has lost its innocence. We lost we've lost our innocence over and over and over again, and yet somehow seem to believe that it it comes back. Um, yeah, it's it's um, frankly childish. Uh,
0: uh, one of the things that what I found extraordinary in my own education was the fact that many of my teachers originated from Europe. They had been refugees, or they had been the first students in Europe after the war, musicians, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I learned about things I could never have known otherwise. Right. I was brought up almost intellectually, in a European way. And this, of course, happened to anyone, any num- in any number of schools that accepted um, uh, refugee teachers. I remember my Italian teacher in uh, college told me that when when she and her husband got to the United States, they had nothing. And she had been a teacher, but she had no records. She didn't have her transcripts. And she said, I just had to swear that I had done what I had done. And she said, thank God they gave me a job. And the interesting thing about it is that at Christmas time she taught us Italian Christmas carols which was very strange for an Italian Jewish woman to be doing but uh, when I asked her about that she gave me such an Italian answer she said (laughs) there it is
1: now Well, I I can add to that. When I got to Smith in 1985, um, there was a generation of faculty just then beginning to retire who had, in fact, been refugees, um, who had come to the States. Uh, Some of them had been adults when they came already. Some had been teenagers. Um, But a, a generation of European refugees who had moved into the academy, who taught history here? Who taught languages? Um, and uh, they—I uh, think—they gave the rest of us uh, a richer sense of the of the complexities of history and of the the, the intersections of, of different cultures in different places. Um, you know, and they—they have they all now retired, and, and many of them are dead. But but it was it was uh, it was in a deeply enriching. Um, thing about about coming to this place
0: this is what we need to grow intellectually we need to learn about things that are hard to face and we can um, we can only be thankful that we benefited from that generation of teachers i would like to ask you now something about um, a writer that you refer to often in one of your chapters, Walter Benjamin, and the role of the flaneur. Now, you you use the flaneur to tell some very important things in your book. First of all, can you tell us what is a flaneur and what's the connection between the Flaneur and Walter Benjamin's work, The Arcade's Project.
1: The, the Flaneur is, is a figure that originates in 19th century French literature. Um, Benjamin associated him especially with Baudelaire. Um, he's present in, in uh, Poe as well in a story called The Man in the Crowd. The Flaneur is a wanderer in the city um, there's a figure who is is typically male um, in the in the classic literature on it, but a person who is walking um, and walking with no necessary destination in mind. Um, a person who is, uh, as I say this, I have a, one of Alfred Kazin's book, early books in mind, A Walker in the City, about his experience of, of growing up in New York. Um, but but uh, a person who wanders the city noticing, pausing, lingering, um, absorbing the experience of urban life. Uh, those walks are not necessarily geared to a destination. They're not geared towards any necessary kind of economic activity. Um, they do bespeak a certain quality of leisure, though. Often the planner is not so much leisured as un- or underemployed. Um, they're the walks of somebody who has no particular reason for being this place rather than that. Now, uh, so so for uh, a traveler, uh, for a travel writer, um, there's really no better person to be uh, than a flaneur. But for Benjamin, um, Benjamin took the flaneur as uh, as a type of, um, of modern man. Uh, he associated the flaneur with um, with the style of architecture uh, that developed in Paris in the nineteenth century' it's the the arcades these spaces that were both inside and outside uh, shopping arcades that took advantage of of uh, the new steel girder construction to to put um, long interior spaces that would yet resemble streets. Um, we now think of them perhaps as you know, the, the the galleries. Uh, uh, or gallerias of of, uh, of contemporary shopping but, but for Benjamin they were much more than shopping spaces, they were, they were liminal spaces um, neither public nor private, neither in nor out and therefore for him definitive of, of modernity and also spaces in which the flaneur uh, might have a, a special they were places made for loitering. Um, and, um, you know, I, I find Benjamin uh, suggestive and frustrating in equal measure. Frustrating because um, you know, that almost any one of his sentences can make you linger over it for, um, you know, for an hour, teasing out the implications, this suggestive quality. Then you mean's a great a great worker in in fragments and fragments always take take much longer to sort through than sometimes they take longer to sort through them than, than they would've taken to write. Um, but uh, he also suggests that even you know, in some ways that we see the city in in fragments or that or that, that our job as walkers in a city is to try to assemble a whole out of out of the different fragments of experience we we have there. Uh,
0: Another thing that is interesting about the flaneur is that non-arrival seems to be part of the profile. And I almost wonder whether in describing as you did all your experiences uh, and your um, ways of learning about the various levels of Germany, almost as though you were on an archaeological dig, um, that non arrival is probably the goal of a successful book huh. because you cannot close an idea of a country so easily mm-hmm. yeah. now I um did not at the beginning say. The data, the date the book was published, which was 2004, and we uh, we are honoring it as a as a venerable new book because it is in the new millennium. But what's interesting uh, now for me to ask you is, now as a 10 year old book, how um, how has it been conversing with you for 10 years, and is there anything given the benefit of hindsight, that you would have put in that you didn't put in at the time? Well,
1: um, I've got a bunch of answers to that. I I reread it this morning for the first time in in a number of years um, and found that I I actually liked it still, um, which was was gratifying. Um, What would I change? Um, I think there are laces uh that I went to that I didn't manage to get in I had a draft chapter uh about uh, a long drive through southern Germany that never quite cohered into anything and so I I hived off some glossy magazine articles from it instead mm-hmm. um but it didn't it didn't cohere I would like I wish that that had uh, been able to work because I, I had some material I liked about pilgrimage churches in particular. Um, I wish there were more people in the book. Um, uh, I'm actually uh, I'm not good at wandering through places and turning sh- chance conversations into into anecdote and into story. Uh, my German was not that good. I didn't want to rely on English in talking with people. I didn't do interviews with people, so I relied on things that that my my, my friends told me um, there could be more people in it, and maybe fewer books, fewer fewer things I, I found in the library. Um, although the the interplay of of the flaneur and the library is probably what's distinctive about the book and what has what has stayed with me. There, are, there are a couple of things that that did come out of it. Um, one is I I think oddly, I said at the start that I didn't want to write another book about novels, but Writing uh, some passages in this book um, uh, about Woodenbrooks, about Fontana, um, gave me a different way of writing about fiction. Uh, it was more casual. It was less academic. Um, it did more with um, with plot summary and letting summary turn into commentary without yet becoming formal analysis. And I I learned a lot from that. And I think that actually um, played into and affected uh, the next book I wrote, my my book about Henry James, Portrait of a Novel. Um, I don't think I could have written that book, which was a trade book, was written for a general reader. I don't think I could have written that book without having written this one first.
0: What you wrote about Budenbrook's, taught me so much about German history because when one reads um, a book in a course in university or or because one likes the author and uh, Thomas Mann is the author of you you're not in Lübeck and you're not looking at the buildings and you went to describe that red stone that was used to build the church there. Or is it the cathedral? Oh, it's a church, which is a very um, unreligious material to use for a church, and yet Lübeck is all business. Mm-hmm. So it was the perfect, uh, the perfect manifestation. And without you're telling us, you're being on those streets and looking. And relating, well, this is where Thomas Mann's home was. And and without that actual on-the-ground information, the book would, as you say, just kind of remain literary instead of being something that was reflecting the real life of people in a city. Uh, I'm very uh, grateful for that. And now I have a question for you: Has uh, the bells and their silence been translated into German?
1: It has not. Um, it has not. Uh, I had some conversations with um, with a colleague at another school who said he was interested in translating it, but um, without a publisher in sight, uh, it didn't. It didn't seem something that was. Plausible to undertake. Um, I would I would be delighted, but uh, but uh, it, it has not happened.
0: Well, perhaps it will yet, and I I hope it would. I would like to say that, it, I hope the listeners uh, realize that this is actually a rather short book. It's 189 pages, and then it has um, a bibliographical chapter in case you want to read more about um, the books that you yourself mentioned and drew on uh, I I felt that it was a great gift to read this book which was filled in addition to everything else we've talked about with descriptions of famous paintings and paintings that became famous because of how you place them in context. Now, the one that you begin the book with, which is the Wanderer above the Sea of Fog, of Caspar David Friedrich, is so well known as the um, the or image of Romanticism, yes. which actually began in Germany, 19th century. Romanticism was its birthplace. So, there are, um, there are, it's like a great carpet with strands crisscrossing in all different ways. And it makes you think about today's history. It makes you remember terrible times in German history. And It shows you people who are living every day with all the pieces and having arranged them or rearranged them and think about them. A a truly reflective experience that is travel in the hugest sense because um, as... As uh, Proust has said, the, um, I hope I will quote this correctly, the um, essence of travel is not to see a new place, but to see the same place with new eyes. And I want to thank you so much for letting us have new eyes on this vast subject Thank you. And and so much a part of our heritage as Western Europeans. I would like to ask you now, are you working on a new book?
1: I, I am indeed. I am starting a book. Um, it will be a complete change, uh, but a, a book on Faulkner and the Civil War.
0: Ah, well, uh, we look forward very much to being able to read it. And I would like to say once more that the title of your book that we have been discussing today is The Bells in Their Silence Travels Through Germany. This was published by Princeton University Press in 2004. And I want to thank Michael Gore, its author, very, very much for spending this time with us. And thank you for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much.